Please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm chapter 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, family of God. The idea of glory runs throughout Scripture. When the Bible talks about glory, it is talking about the splendor, the magnificence, the beauty of something. And when the Bible talks about the glory of God, it is talking about something exceedingly awesome. The glory of God is the greatness, the goodness, the beauty, the splendor, the magnificence, the transcendence of God on display for people to see. Now, how many of you have ever been surprised by God? Some of you might know, Pastor, I always know what God's up to. I don't think so. God is beyond our comprehension. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God's ways are higher than our ways. No matter how much we think we know about God, we have only scratched the surface of who he is. His judgments are unsearchable. His wisdom is unfathomable. We don't know everything there is to know about God. And yet, God in his mercy reveals himself to us. He reveals himself preeminently in the person of Jesus Christ. The Son of God who came and lived a perfect life and died for our sins. So if we trust in him, we can have eternal life with God forever. There's also a lot of images that God uses to show us who he is. And the Bible is consistent in its depiction of God revealed. It often describes one of the most important ways, one of the most fascinating pictures we have of God in the Bible is that of a fire. The Bible describes God as, or his glory, like a consuming fire. When people see God revealed, it produces in them both awe and fear. One of these examples occurs in Exodus chapter 24, when the glory of God descends on Mount Sinai. It's described as a sight like a devouring fire, consuming everything in its path. The mountain is wrapped in smoke because the Lord has descended on it. 
is so brilliant, so radiant, that when God calls Moses up on the mountain and Moses meets with God and he comes back down the mountain, it says that Moses' face continued to shine. He had to cover it with a veil because people were afraid to come near him. That's the glory of God. Another example happens in Exodus chapter 40 when the tabernacle is dedicated. And it says that the glory of the Lord descends upon the tabernacle like a cloud, a dark cloud, so that Moses, the man of God, can't even enter into the tabernacle. That's the glory of God. When the Ark of the Covenant in 1 Kings chapter 8, the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolizes God's presence with his people, is brought into the temple. So the cloud fills the temple and the priests... Those who are most holy, the closest to God, can't enter the temple, can't stay in the temple because of the glory of God that fills that place. In Isaiah chapter 6, when the prophet Isaiah is called to be a messenger of the message of God, it says he, he sees the Lord seated on high. And it says that smoke filled the temple. All Isaiah can see is his own sin in the light of God's glory. The glory of God is like a devouring fire. It consumes. It burns up. It is dangerous. If you get too close, it will burn you up. Hebrews chapter 12 says our God is a consuming fire. Now, why are we talking about this fire? Why are we talking about this glory? Well, look with me again at verses 7 through 10 in your text. As I read, I want you to count how many times you hear the word glory. You can count out loud, but the person next to you might not like that, so you might count to yourself. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. How many times do you count? Five times. Five times in four verses. That is significant. Five times we hear the psalmist cry out, the king of glory is coming. The king of glory is coming. Heads up. Get ready because the king of glory is coming. There is an urgency in his voice. Why is he urgent? He's urgent because glory is coming. He's urgent because when glory comes, it comes as a devouring fire that produces both awe and fear. Awe because of the brilliance of the glory of God, which is the most awesome sight in the whole universe. And fear because it comes like a devouring fire, fire burning up everything that's not pure. He is urgent because when the glory comes, everything changes. The question that's raised two times in those verses is, So who is this king of glory? And the answer the psalmist gives is the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And in verse 10, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Now in these these verses, we have four phrases that describe the king of glory. First, he is the Lord. Everyone say the Lord. Now this Lord, if you look in in your English Standard Version or even your New American Standard Version, you'll see it is, has small caps, what they call the tetragrammaton. It, it means that we're talking about the covenant name of God. 
It's Yahweh. It's Jehovah. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God who made a covenant with a small tribe of people to bless them by making them numerous and prosperous, by providing for them, by rescuing them from oppression, by freeing them for communion with himself. This is the God who always keeps his word. The God who who never breaks a promise. This is the God who promised to bless the whole world through the descendant of Abraham. This is the God who can take someone small and make them great, who can dethrone kings and lift up shepherds, who takes care of widows and orphans in their distress. This is the Lord. This is the king of glory. He's also strong and mighty. This is the one who has all power in the palm of his hand. What he decrees, no one can come against. He is able, full stop, fill in the blank. Nothing can thwart his purposes. He can do whatever he wills, and his will is always good. He's able to accomplish what he desires. Nothing can threaten him. He is strong and mighty. Third, he is mighty in battle. He always wins. Always. He always has the final victory. None of his enemies can survive against him. He cannot be conquered. He cannot be displaced. Victory belongs to him. This is the king of glory. And fourth, he is the Lord of hosts. This word hosts is another word for armies. He has legions of angels at his disposal that are ready and willing to do his bidding. You might remember the story from Matthew chapter 26 when Jesus is getting arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and the the chief priests and the leaders of the Jews send these armed warriors to come with swords and clubs to come and arrest Jesus. And Peter pulls out his shank and decides to cut off the ear of one of the servants, Malchus, of the high priest. And Jesus said, Put your shank away. (laughs) Put it away. He said, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And he said, don't you know that I could call 12 legions of angels right now? That is 72,000 angels. 72,000 warriors of light. This is the Lord of hosts. We shouldn't think of some centurion with a hundred little small Roman guards. We're talking about 72,000 beings who can take down a thousand men with one sweep. Each. This is the Lord of hosts. Talking about God Almighty who has thousands upon thousands of powerful beings of light who are ready to receive orders from the Lord and act on them with perfect accuracy in the blink of an eye. This is the king of glory. Who is the king of glory? The king of glory is the covenant-keeping God who has all power, who never loses, who commands innumerable warrior angels with a word. This is the king of glory. Why is the psalmist urgent? Because the king of glory is coming. Now, this could be a terrifying reality if not for the rest of the psalm and the rest of Scripture. Because for those who know God in Christ Jesus, the arrival of the King of Glory is the best news in the world. 
Let's talk about why. First of all, the king of glory is the creator king. The creator king. Everyone say the creator king. Look with me, verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And what the psalmist is saying is that everything belongs to God. He is the one who created the world. He is the one who started history. Think about that. He is the one upon whom everything in the world depends. Now, this is good news for a lot of reasons. I want to point out two. One, it's good that the king of glory is the creator king because God has made a good creation. A good creation. When God looked at what he had made, he said, it is good. And we looked at all that he had made, he said, this is very good. One Old Testament theologian said, looks at this verse and says that nothing is outside the goodness of God's creation. Nothing. Which is why when we go to the New Testament, we find the Apostle Paul quoting the first verse of this psalm in 1 Corinthians 10.23 when he's, or 10.26 when he's talking to the Corinthians and they're wondering about what kind of food should I eat? What should I, how do I keep myself clean? And what he's saying is, he says, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And in verse 31 he says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. He said, everything belongs to God. Is what I'm doing holy work? Is it work? Then it's good. Did God give you that food? Then it's good. Did God give you that drink? Then it's good. Did God give you that task? Then it's good. Did God give you that friendship? Then it's good. Did God give you that pet? Then it's good. What we're saying is that everything is meant to be a signpost directing us to the glory of God revealed in all of creation. Which means that I can enjoy the fruits of God's creation, the goodness of God's creation, as unto Him, because He is Lord of all creation. That's the King of Glory. It's also good news that the King of Glory is the Creator King because When God made the world, he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. That's verse 2. Now, this is an incredible image that's used over and over again in the Bible. In ancient Near Eastern literature, the seas, sometimes the rivers, like in this situation, in this context, are a symbol of chaos. Why? Have you ever tried to control the sea? New Orleans tried it. It didn't work. I'm not being flippant. You can't control the sea. You can't press pause on a hurricane. You can't stop a tsunami. You can't tame a wave. At least you and I can't. The sea represents chaos. When the psalmist says that God founded the earth upon the seas, he's saying that in God's creative work, he subdued chaos. 
He brought order where there was disorder. He brought peace where there was disruption. Now, this is really good news for us. How many of you have some chaos in your life? How many of you could use some more peace in your life? Listen, so often when the world tries to bring peace, it results in more chaos. We could try to find peace through politics and we could hear people talking about peace and unity. But what they often mean is they want their side or their party or their PAC to get what they want. We could try to find peace through perfect money management. We might try to find peace in Wall Street, but the game stops at Reddit. It won't work. We could try to find peace through optimism or positive thinking. But if we press in deep enough to any major issue plaguing society, we'll run into the reality that we are and the world is much more broken than we thought. What the psalmist teaches us is that God is the author of peace who alone brings true peace. If we want true peace, we need to go to the author of peace, the creator king, who alone has the will and the power, not just the will, but the power to bring about true peace in the world and in our lives. That same theologian, Ellen Chari, says this, as the message here is that God is in control of the world implying that humanity's role in its governance is peripheral, on the fringes. God is in control. The global vantage point casts human life as a small part in the great scheme of things that God has wrought. God is in control. And that's really good news. So the first reason why we look forward to the arrival of the King of Glory is that he is the creator king who establishes good and who establishes peace. The second reason why I look forward to the arrival of the King of Glory is that he comes to bring blessing and protection. Look with me at verse 5. Now, in verse 5, we're talking about the person or the people who ascend the hill of the Lord, the people who dwell in the holy place where the King of Glory is coming. And he says this in verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And when we say righteousness here, we can... Some translations translate this vindication. What we're talking about is protection. We're talking about blessing and protection. Now, according to Old Testament scholar Willem van Gimmeren, who spoke here a few years ago, some of you might remember, he says, the blessing, quote unquote, the blessing is, listen up, the status of God's favor extended to his loyal servants who enjoy the promises of the covenant. I'm going to say that again because it's really important. We're going to be talking about covenant in a second. I want you to to get this. Everybody say covenant. Covenant. Read this again. The blessing, it's here in verse 5, is the status of God's favor extended to his loyal servants who enjoy the promises of the covenant. In other words, blessing is covenantal favor. Now, in this time period, nations would often make treaties with other nations, just like today. If you're a strong, if you're a strong nation and you come to the borders of my little weak nation, you have two options. You can wipe me out, destroy me, occupy all of my villages, or you can make a treaty with me. And that treaty was a covenant. Again, everybody say covenant. 
Now, in that covenant, we might say something like this. All right. All right. All right. All right. Welcome to my humble nation. I get to keep my villages and I'll pay you taxes. And I'll give you free use of my roads. But most importantly, if we make this treaty, I give you allegiance. I give you loyalty in exchange for your protection. My allegiance is with you, which means that if any other nation comes and tries to trade with me, I got to go to you first. But that also means If any other nation comes and attacks me, you have now put yourself in the place of my protector, which means you got to come to my assistance with these folks. You see what's going on? Now, we see this sometimes today. I had a student who, when he was in ninth grade, he was hanging out with some dudes who used to gangbang, hardcore. And somewhere between his ninth and tenth grade year, he decided, I don't want no more of that life. Which, if you know anything about gangs, you, you just can't say that. You can't just, just get out of that. There's a covenant there. But what happened was some of the OGs found out that this dude was trying to get his life together, get some school stuff together, and get, get, his, get himself set academically. And so what the OG said was to everybody else, they said, hey, if you mess with him, you mess with us. Free ride. Full scholarship to OU. $20,000. Works at Boeing. Started an engineering program at Capitol Hill High School. I'll tell you what. He said, if you mess with them, you mess with me. Now, why is this important? I give you allegiance, you give me favor, blessing, protection. This is an important concept in the Bible. We see it play out at a national level, at a tribe level, at a family level. I give you allegiance, you give me protection. You feel me? You got this? That's covenant. And what verse 5 is telling us is that the king of glory has made a covenant with his people. They receive blessing. They receive protection. They receive favor. That's a big deal if we remember what we already said about the king of glory. He keeps his covenant. He keeps his word. He is strong and mighty. He never fails. He never loses. He is valiant. And he's got legions of angels at his disposal. Which means that if you are one of God's people, they mess with you. They mess with him. Believe it, church. If they mess with you, they mess with him. There's no one better to have a covenant with. He will meet all of your needs. So God's people look forward to the arrival of the king of glory, not only because he's the, king of, he's the creator king, but because he's the Lord of hosts who promises to bring blessing and protection. There's another side of this covenant. This is really good news. The king of glory is coming. He's coming to bring goodness and peace and blessing and protection. There's another side of this covenant. 
Look at verses three and four. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Who's going to be on that on that mountain when the king of glory gets there? Who's going to enjoy his blessing and protection? Who's going to enjoy his goodness and peace forever? He says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. We've been talking about the king of glory coming in power and he's coming to a holy place, the hill of the Lord, where we find goodness, peace, blessing and protection. But what does the Lord require of those who dwell in his home? Can just anybody walk up in there? He says you need clean hands. Everybody say clean hands. And we can say this positively and we can say it negatively. We'll start with it negatively. This means people who dwell in God's house, who enjoy his favor and protection, haven't done anything wrong. They don't lie, they don't cheat, they don't steal, they don't break his law. Say it positively. They've kept all the law of God. Their actions and behavior reflect the goodness and peace of God. Their, their words are the words of God and their lives match their words. These people care for those in need, look out for the good of other people. They give themselves to creative, life-giving work. They have clean hands. Everybody say clean hands. Man, clean hands. That's hard. I don't have clean hands. But he goes on. I think there's a trajectory here. He says pure hearts. Everybody say pure hearts. Because the thing is, is that Paul later on in Colossians chapter two is going to say, hey, you can you can go with these things about I'm not going I'm not going to handle this stuff. I'm not going to touch this stuff. I'm going to taste this stuff. You can have your clean hands, but it doesn't doesn't change the longings of your heart. You got to have a pure heart. You can say this positively or negatively. You start with negatively. You can means you're never motivated by impure thoughts or impure desires. Say it positively means you're always motivated by love for God and for other people. You desire the best for each person you come in contact with. Pure hearts. That's hard, too. I can't even change my heart. He goes on to say, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now, you could, this idea of lifting up means like longing for, relishing, craving. And he says, you're not longing for, not craving that which will not satisfy. You don't long, you don't, you don't give yourself to something that's not going to keep its promise. Say it positively means you have a single-minded devotion to God and his purposes. That's all you care about. He says clean hands, he says pure hearts, he says single-minded devotion Verse 6 says, such is the generation of those who seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Is this good news? The king of glory is coming. When he's coming, he's going to bring goodness and peace. He's going to bring goodness and peace and blessing and protection for all those who have clean hands, pure heart, and a single-minded devotion to him alone. When I was my second year teaching, we were teaching 12th grade English, and we were going to jump into Shakespeare. We we're going to read Hamlet, but that was going to be hard for a lot of reasons we could talk about later. And so 
my principal allowed me to do some translation work, which meant that we were going to scaffold in, in educated terms or build a ladder to get to Hamlet, because Hamlet is not easy, which means that what we're going to do was I told my students, like, here's your textbook I want you to buy is a, I want you to buy a King James version of the Bible, and I want you to buy any other Bible you want, just as long as you can read it. I said, that's your textbook. And what we're going to do is we're going to do some poetry analysis on the Psalms. We're going to move from that and do some, you're going to be able to translate that because we've got the King James Bible, 1611. We're good, Shakespeare, a Shakespeare time. Then we're going to jump and do some poetry analysis on the sonnets of Shakespeare. Then we're going to jump into Hamlet and get to to be or not to be. We're going to move it up. So we decided to so start, start studying some psalms. And we get to Psalm 24. And we have a Socratic seminar. And one of my favorite students, I'll call it Jay, I'll call it Jay. We're sitting in a Socratic seminar, and if you don't know what a Socratic seminar, basically you're having a discussion about the text. You just look, look at the text, ask questions, and you just ask open-ended questions, and you talk about the text. And the question was, like, what does this mean? And they started talking about it, saying, you've got to have clean hands and a pure heart to appear before God. And Jay is like, excuse me? She says, wait a minute, Mr. Silo. When you look at this verse, it says he had to have clean hands and a pure heart. But that means not everybody going to heaven. And one of my other students who I knew was a Christian said, but we're not all going to heaven. And she was like, what? And I was like, don't talk about that. See, what is self-evident in this text is that nobody lives up to this. Nobody has clean hands. If they got clean hands, nobody's got a pure heart. If they got a pure heart, nobody's got a single-minded devotion to God. Nobody lives up to this. Who's going to send the hill of the Lord? In this case, nobody. But I'm glad it doesn't stop there. Because if you look at the end of verse Six. Excuse me, verse five. What we read is four words. God of his salvation. He shall receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. If you look that word up in the Hebrew, you know what that word is? The same word from which you get the name Yeshua. You know what Yeshua means? Yeshua is the name of Jesus. Remember in Matthew chapter 1 when the angel comes to Joseph and he says, you're going to have a son. And I want you to call his name Yeshua. He's going to save his people from their sins. See, the good news is that this righteousness, this, this protection, this blessing that God promises to give to his children, he's going to give it to them through Yeshua, through Jesus, the incarnate son of God, who's going to live a perfect life, who's always going to have clean hands, who's always going to have a pure heart, who's going to have a single-minded devotion to God. He's going to take your place and invite you in and clothe you with his righteousness so you can enjoy Life.
under the king of glory. This is good news. Did Jesus have clean hands? Pilate seemed to think so. He said, I can't find anything wrong with this man. Did Jesus have a clean heart, have a pure heart? Absolutely. Hebrews tells us that he was just like us, tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. Did he have single-minded devotion to God? I can't think of anybody else who can sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, who can see death imminently waiting for him, who can see the agony of the cross, and who can still say, not my will, but yours be done. Single-minded devotion to God. He's the only one who could fulfill this psalm. He's the only one who could ascend the hill of the Lord. And guess what he did it? He set his face like flint to Jerusalem and then was thrown out like an insurrectionist. Is there hope for insurrectionists? Yes, there is. I'm not being political. See, what Paul says is, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 4, 6. Nowhere is the glory of God seen as perfectly as in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the glory of God on display in his life, in his death, in his Going to the dead in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his session, in his promised return. He perfectly displays what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. That's where you'll see the glory of God. Now, if you don't know Jesus, let me tell you, friend, you want to be on this mountain. You don't want to be left outside of the protection and the blessing of this covenant-keeping God. You just don't want to be there. If you're looking around at all the goodness of creation, don't let that be the closest you get to the full goodness of God. And all you got to do is receive it. All you got to do is believe this. I don't have clean hands or a pure heart or single-minded devotion to you. But Jesus did. I just trust him. Just receive it. But if you know God, if you've trusted in Christ, you say, I've recognized that every day I see I don't have clean hands, pure heart. My devotion wavers. What does that mean for us? What it means is that God wants to make you a person who has single-minded devotion to him. I know what some of y'all are facing. Some of y'all are like, yo, I've been, I've been trying to focus on Jesus. And my family keeps saying, I've been trying to focus on Jesus. And my car gets getting, I keep trying to focus on Jesus. And I just lost. And my encouragement to you, don't stop focusing. On Jesus. His word is true. He is a covenant keeping God. He says, trust in me with all your heart. 
Don't lean on what you can understand. In all your ways, acknowledge who I am. And guess what? I'll make your path straight. I'll make it straight. I can take a crooked stick. I can draw straight lines. I can do it. What God wants to make us is people who have a single-minded devotion to him. Which if we have a single-minded devotion to Jesus, what that's going to do is transform us from the inside out. It's going to give us pure hearts. Hearts that, that long for the good of other people. So to make my decisions not based off of what's going to be for my comfort and my protection. I got that. That's guaranteed. I can make decisions based on what's going to be good for you. What's going to help you? What's going to bring God's blessing and protection to you? That's a pure heart. What God can do is he can let that, that, that heart that's purely devoted to him be transformed into works of creative, life-giving work. He can transform us from the inside out. So the king of glory came once and he came in a very inglorious way and he died in an inglorious way and he calls people to live inglorious lives servant lives wiping poop off people's feet but what he guarantees is that the glory is coming one day, Jesus is going to come back, and it'll all be worth it. It'll be glory unmatched, unceasing, without fail, without fade. It's there right now, reserved in heaven for you. Trust him and keep seeking him with all your heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Your word is so good. And we cling to it. We call on you as the covenant-keeping God to keep keeping your promise, Lord. Because it's hard sometimes to maintain devotion. It's hard sometimes to maintain a single-mindedness. But Lord... If we got to your presence because of our single-mindedness, none of us would ever get there. We get there on the work of Jesus Christ. So we thank you that you are a forgiving God. We thank you that you are a promise-keeping God. We thank you that you never fail. I pray as as we come to your table, Lord, we would receive again your good work in the person and life of Jesus, in death and resurrection of Jesus. Have mercy, Lord, and use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.